0: Our Father, this morning we come to you as humbled people, humbled because we should know only your wrath. There is no reason for us to have known anything but your wrath except for your infinite, astounding Overwhelming mercy. You took pity on us. And you made the gospel available to us. And you have saved us. It really is incomprehensible. It really is overwhelming. And we thank you. As we look at this passage, one last look at Your sovereign hand in salvation and Your sovereign hand over the people of Israel, might we be moved to worship as we consider the One who has granted such a great salvation to Israel and to us. Would You lead us this morning, Father, into delight in You, the Giver of of this great salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I like, like many of you, a good whodunit. Uh, many Sunday evenings have been spent by our family watching Masterpiece Mystery, things like Foil's War and Sherlock and Inspector Lewis and Miss Marple and Poirot and Endeavor and more. I have been known to read Agatha Christie novels and similar kinds of fare. I like a good whodunit. And that puts us in good stead as we come to the Scriptures this morning because while there are no whodunits in Scripture particularly, there is a massive mystery in Scripture. The, the, The question is not who did it, but will He do it, and why did he do it there is a mystery in the scriptures and and the mystery is not what do all those strange numbers mean and and if we manipulate the numbers just right do we do we get the secret decoder ring that helps us figure out what the Bible is no it's not that mystery the mystery in the Bible is about salvation the mystery in the Bible is about the salvation particularly of the Jews remember as we talk about a mystery A mystery, biblically speaking, is something that has been hidden in times past, but now has been exposed and revealed by God and shown to us what He has previously hidden. And the grand revelation in the New Testament is not just that God is saving the Jews, but the grand mystery of the New Testament is that God is also saving the Gentiles along with the Jews. He is folding them into the promises that He has made to the nation of Israel without replacing Israel in those promises. In his ultimate chapter on God's sovereignty in salvation, in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul culminates his argument in this chapter and in this section by saying in verses 25 to 32 that Israelites have rebelled against God, but God will yet save his people Israel. That is, individual Israelites have rebelled against God, individual Israelites from the beginning of the creation of the nation all the way through its history, even into contemporary times, individuals have resisted God's plan, have pushed against Him, have rejected Him. But that does not mean that God's plan with Israel has ended. God will yet save the nation of Israel as a nation. Last week, We saw three truths about the mystery of Israel's salvation. That's in verses 25 to verse 27. In this passage, Paul will reveal five characteristics about God who is behind the mystery of salvation. I want us to pay attention particularly to the nature of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, who has unfolded this mystery of Gentile being folded into the promises of Israel. Israelites have rebelled against God, but God will yet save His people, Israel. What do we learn about God in this passage? First of all, verse 28, this mystery reveals God's grace. This mystery reveals God's grace. In verses 28 to 32, there is very little new that is revealed to us about the nature of the mystery of God. But there is new and expanded information about God who is behind the mystery, who has produced this mystery of Jews and Gentiles together in salvation. Notice what the Apostle says at the beginning of verse 28. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel. That is, if you consider the progress of the gospel, and as you think about how the gospel has gone out into the world... As you consider the the nature of the gospel, the reality is that the Jews, the Israelite people, are enemies. Now we know from chapter 5 verse 10 that all men without Christ are enemies of God. And the apostle here is pointing out the fact that, that Israel is a particular kind of enemy of God. And the question is, how is Israel... And how are the Israelites, those who have rejected Christ, how are they the enemies of God? Well, they're enemies of God in two ways particularly. They are active enemies of God. That is, they hate God. They are disobedient. They are rebellious. They are stubborn. They refuse to submit to God. They refuse to submit to Christ. They refuse to embrace Christ as the Messiah. Chapter 9, verse 31. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why did they not arrive at righteousness? Because, verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith. But though as it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. They rejected Christ. They repudiated Christ. Chapter 10, just a couple of verses later, verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They did not place themselves under God's provision of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ, they rejected Him. They hated Him. They are active enemies of God. But they are also passive enemies of God. And by that, we simply mean they are hated by Him. That is, they are under His wrath. God has hardened Israel and God has hardened individual Israelites keeping them In their sin and allowing them to persist in their sin and in their hatred of Him. So chapter 11, we saw this a few weeks ago. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. That is, there's a remnant and the rest were hardened As it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. They not only hate God, but they are hated by God in that He keeps them in their sin. He keeps them in their rebellion. I want you to notice from this verse that the gospel does not make them God's enemies. They are already God's enemies. The mass of Israel, with the exception of the remnant that he's already identified, these individuals within the nation who have accepted Christ and turned to him in faith, the mass of the nation of Israel are already enemies of God because of their rebellion against him. And the mystery of God, the truth that God is now revealing is that God is keeping them as enemies for a very particular purpose. Notice this in the next phrase. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. For your sake. For you. That is, for the sake of the Gentile Roman leaders We've alluded to this passage many times as we've made our way through Romans, but in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, He promises Abraham a land. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Verse 2, He promises him a progeny, a nation, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, he promises a, a land, a seed, a nation, and a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So I'm promising to you salvation, but not only to you, but to all the nations of the earth, salvation will come through the promise that I am granting to you. In other words, the nation of Israel was to be the means by which Gentiles would come to faith and to know the provision of righteousness by God ultimately through Christ alone. The nation of Israel was to be The means by which we Gentiles would be folded into those promises. I am the Lord, God says to Isaiah in chapter 42. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and will watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. That is, all of the nations will come to know what salvation is and what righteousness is through the testimony of the nation of Israel. He expands this in chapter 49. This is, this is going to be the work of the Messiah as well, Forty-nine six, He says, "...is it too small a thing that you, the Messiah, should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel?" I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the Messiah will come in fulfillment of the promises that were made way back in Genesis chapter 12 that not only is salvation coming to Abraham and to all those who will come from him, the nation of Israel, but to all the nations on the earth. Israel was to be that light For our salvation, and the one thing we know from the the history of the nation of Israel is that they consistently repudiated their role as being light to the nations. In fact, they rejected God Himself, not just the role as being light, and they rejected His Messiah. Acts chapter thirty-two, thirteen. Excuse me. Acts chapter thirteen, verse thirty-six. Paul, on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, spoke out loudly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking to the Israelites. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Chapter 18, verse 6, again, coming to another group of Israelites When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments, Paul did, and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In fact, at least four times in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul says, I'm leaving the Jews and I'm going to the Gentiles. Why? Because God will fulfill His promise that the nations will get the message of the Gospel. And part of the means... Of the nations getting the message of the gospel is the hardening of Israel. As you think about the progress of the gospel, 1128 of Romans, Israel is the enemy of God for your sake, so that you could hear the gospel and be folded into the promises. Of God, my friends, this is grace. We who were outside we who were outside the camp, we were who were outside the promises, we who were outside Israel, we who had no expectation to receive anything from God, have been folded into god 's promises through the rebellion of Israel when the girls were little on one occasion one of them who will remain nameless was disobedient and I don't remember the exact particulars except I could not locate the instrument of discipline at that particular time and I don't know if this ever happened in your house but on occasion in our house kids close your ears for now Um, sometimes our children would hide the instruments of discipline. And I think that's what had happened on this occasion. And I went to the place where we stored it, and it was gone. And the sister of the person who was in the process of being disciplined came to me and very joyously said, Daddy, here's the spanking spoon. I'm being good. Um... That is not exactly what is happening to the Gentiles. The Gentiles have no means and no recourse to go to God and say, God, the the, the Jews are being rebellious. Here is the weapon of discipline that you should use against them. We're good. No, friend. Israel was the enemy of God. So were you. So was I. And God has kept Israel in their rebellion against Him long enough so that He might extend His grace to you and fold you into His promise. This is grace. This is grace. The mystery is not just about grace. It is about God's grace. The mystery is also... A revelation of God's love. Notice this at the back half of verse 28. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. You familiar with the term unrequited love? A love that is not reciprocated? psychology today which i don't recommend by the way but psychology today suggests that 98% of adults have been in an unrequited love relationship that means that that you probably have experienced either as the recipient of or the giver of an unrequited love uh, they they had a number of a number of um Potential responses that we might give, that one might give when they are the recipient of an unrequited love. I won't read you all of it, but, but one, one aspect of it was um, particularly interesting. And I quote directly. Sometimes, psychology today tells us, sometimes it is hard to tell when others like us. If they show genuine interest, it may be possible to establish a real relationship. So, Try being a little less nice in ways that might lead you to being taken for granted. In other words, the problem is you're loving too much, so stop loving and start being mean, and then they will learn to love you in response. Yeah, I've tried that a couple times in my house. doesn't really work real well. It's not honoring to God, obviously, and it really is not a benefit to my marriage relationship. In the history of the world, of all those who have received unrequited love, God is at the top of the list. For His love towards His people has not been reciprocated. And aren't you glad that God has not responded in kind in the way that psychology today says that we ought to respond? Notice what God does. He does two things. For the nation of Israel, from the standpoint of God's choice, they're beloved. Notice, first of all, they are the object of God's choice. That is, God has elected them. God has chosen them to be His covenant people. This reiterates... The the sovereign choice that God made in choosing Israel to be His people that we saw way back in verse 2, what I said then was, was really a theme of this chapter. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew, whom He elected, whom He chose. Or do you not know what the Scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, and then he goes into the defense of God having chosen Israel and preserved Israel. He has chosen Israel. Deuteronomy 7 tells us he didn't choose Israel because Israel was the greatest, but because Israel was the least. He chose them as a demonstration and manifestation of his love. And in fact, that's where the Apostle Paul goes next. They're not just chosen by God, but they are chosen by him and preserved by him as beloved for the sake of the fathers. They are beloved. They are loved. They're objects of God's love. They have not merited love. God loves them because He does as an expression of His divine nature. And why does He love them? Notice what the text says. For the sake of the fathers. That is, for the sake of the patriarchs. For the sake of God's promises to the patriarchs. So, so way back in Genesis 12, God made the promise to Abraham. And then He reiterated it to Isaac. And then He reiterated it to Jacob. And then it flowed through the twelve sons, the twelve tribes of Jacob. For the sake of all of those, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve sons of Jacob, God is keeping His promise to love His people. Because of His covenant promise to them, He will persist in His love for the nation of Israel. He will not give up on loving His people Israel. How far will you go? In your love for others. How far does your love travel? When will you stop loving someone? When will, when will you give up on your commitment to a relationship? To a family member? To a friend? Absolutes are often overstated. My mother taught me early and often. Never say never and it's always wrong to say always. So absolutes are are very often overstated, but it is probably safe to say we almost all have limits to how far we will go with our love. But not God. God has no limitation to His love. He will preserve His people. He will continue in relationship with Israel because He loves them Because he made a promise to love them as far back as Abraham. And he cannot go back on that promise. Which is where the apostle goes goes next. This mystery reveals God's immutability. His immutability. The word immutability simply means his unchangingness. God cannot change. And the word the apostle uses in verse 29 is that is that God does things that are irrevocable. That word means that God cannot go back on what He has promised. He cannot be sorry for what He does. He does not regret what He gives. He cannot take back His gifts. Once God has granted something, it cannot be refuted. It cannot be denied. It cannot be lost. And what is it? that God, that Paul says, is irrevocable from the hand of God. What is it that Israel cannot lose? Notice verse 29. It cannot lose the gifts of God. That word gifts is broad and general. And it is derived from a word that means grace. That simply means that God cannot go back. God cannot repent. God cannot regret any manifestations of grace that he has poured out on his people Israel. And specifically, he cannot go back on the gift of grace that we know of as the calling of God. That's the second thing that Paul says is irrevocable, the calling of God. That is the specific act of God's grace. That is His specific act of calling them as His people. His irresistible elective call as as of Israel as His chosen people cannot be turned back on. How do we know it can't be turned back on? Well, we read it earlier this morning as we were called to worship. Chapter 15, verse 8. I say that Christ has become this. Listen to this word. This is astounding. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. Who's the circumcision? That's the nation of Israel. And Christ is a servant to Israel for Israel. Why would he do that on behalf of, of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So so Christ comes and Christ serves Israel by dying for Israel's sin so that Israel could be redeemed to confirm that promise that was made almost at the beginning of this book, Genesis chapter 12. To confirm the promises. Listen. God's calling. God's promises are irrevocable. God is unchanging in his nature. He cannot go back on his commitments to his people. Listen to what the prophet Micah says at the very end of his prophecy. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. Who who does that? To pass over, to forgive the rebel acts of the remnants of the people who belong to him. Who does that? He does not retain his anger forever because... He delights in unchanging love. His love for His people cannot change. It is irrevocable. It cannot be gone back on. Verse 20, Micah chapter 7, You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers From the days of old. Those are the very last words of Micah in his prophecy. God is a God of unchanging love. Listen to what one commentator says. Just because Israel has not believed, it is not as though God is not faithful God, excuse me, Israel still has a place in God's plan because God is faithful. Israel still in the plan because God is faithful to his unchanging love. God is unchanging, my brothers and sisters. And you can trust him. This mystery reveals something else about God. It reveals his mystery. I thought a long time about how to try and unpack verses thirty and thirty-one. They're a little bit, um, a little bit difficult to unsort, and so I did. Keith, you'll be proud of me. Wherever Keith went, oh, he's down on the floor in the back. You'll be proud of me. I made a chart, just for y'all. Verse thirty, Paul is talking about Gentiles. Verse thirty-one. He speaks about Israel. And he speaks about each of those groups in parallel ways to make one point. Notice verse 20, excuse me, notice verse 30. Just as. So now he's setting up a comparison. So there's a like relationship. Just as. Verse 30 about the Gentiles. So, verse 31 about Israel. So Israel And the Gentiles have a like relationship. You, verse 30, speaking to the Roman readers, who are they? They're Gentiles. Verse 31, also now these have been disobedient. These, who's that? That's not the Gentiles in Rome. That's the nation of Israel. Once, verse 30, that is not just on one occasion, but at one time, or at one place in history, or, or one overarching way in which you live. This is, this is not just a reference to their single act of disobedience and rebellion, but it's a reference to all of their rebellion in the past. Once Gentiles acted in this way, so also now, Israel is acting in like manner. You, Gentiles, were disobedient. Israel also, verse 31... Have been disobedient. And in the New Testament, as that word disobedience is used, it's always in reference to God. So the rebellion is not against anyone except God alone. The rebellion is against Him. And that is true of Gentile and that's true of Israelite. You were disobedient and now have been shown mercy. Verse 31. Because of the mercy shown to you, they also now may be shown mercy. Gentiles received mercy. Israel received mercy. Where did that mercy come from? What was the mechanism? Verse 30. They were shown, you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. That is the disobedience of Israel led to the plan of salvation, being made open to Gentiles. So you received mercy from God. You've been folded into the promises. Verse 31, because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. So Israel, as they saw the mercy that was granted to you, they responded in jealousy. We saw that earlier in the chapter, verse 11. And now they also have received mercy. The verses are all parallel all the way through, except for those last two clauses. They're inverted, aren't they? Right? So, verse 30, you have been shown mercy. It's it's not the final phrase, but it is the final phrase in verse 31. The next to last phrase in verse 31 is the mechanism... Of mercy, because of the mercy shown to you, the last phrase in verse 30 is because of their disobedience. So he's turned the order. That's what we call a chiasm. So it kind of creates that cross that I've got shown there. Why does the apostle do that? Because everything else is parallel, right? Everything else is parallel. Except for those two things. Why? To highlight that word mercy he turns the order so that we say wait a minute it doesn't all line up why doesn't it line up because he wants us to see the mercy of God he wants us to see that we as Gentiles have what we have only because of God's mercy it's not because of what we have, what we have in ourselves. it is because God is a merciful God, and Israel has what it has, and will have what it will have on the basis of mercy alone. So why was Israel kept in sin to create an opportunity to grant mercy to the Gentiles? And why were Gentiles given mercy? To demonstrate that God also is giving mercy to the nation of Israel. So why are Jews and Gentiles both given mercy? To exalt God and to help us to see it's all about Him and never about us. I want you to see one more thing with this. Because God is merciful, the disobedience of Israel is not the final word. The disobedience of the Gentiles was not the final word. The mercy of God is the final word. At the end of the day, God will speak and the word will be mercy. And the word will be mercy to all and that's where paul finishes verse 32 this mystery reveals god's impartiality verse 32 serves as a conclusion to this chapter as well as chapters 9 to 11 which are all about god's sovereignty and salvation what is, what is God doing with man's sin? What is God doing with his wrath? What is God doing with his salvation? The summary of it all, verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience. He has enclosed all in disobedience. The word has a sense of imprisonment. He has imprisoned all in disobedience. It is another way for the Apostle Paul to note that all men have rebelled against God. All men have turned away from God. What we saw way back in chapter 3 verse 9 is true. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone is under sin. Everyone is dominated by sin. Everyone is in, controlled by sin. Paul would use this word in chapter 11, verse 32. All are imprisoned, ensnared, enslaved, kept In sin. Why does God do this? Verse 32. Why does he make us all to realize our rebellion and disobedience to him so that he may show mercy to all? Why does God God allow sin to go? When I started ministry, I had no comprehension of the kinds of days that we would live in now. And... A decade, two decades, three decades, five decades ago, y'all didn't either. I'm not talking about COVID. But I'm talking about just flagrant rebelliousness against God. And a massive overturning of the structures of civilization. Why does God do that? Why, why, why does God let it go? So that he can show us what futility we are living in when we live under our own wisdom. And that his mercy is the only way for hope. And friends, what I want you to see is that he makes that mercy he demonstrates that mercy to all. So Genesis chapter 12, He chose Israel. Brothers, we were on the outside. We have, we have no comprehension of how far outside we were. But we were outside a long way from God, removed from Him completely hopeless in this world, Paul will say in Ephesians 2. And he lets sin go so that we can see the magnificence of His mercy. What if God, chapter 9, verse 22, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Friends, mercy will never be merciful until you know the magnificence of God's wrath, the greatness and the extent of God's wrath. There is no mercy until God is wrathful. There is no mercy until sin has gone rampant and caused such destruction. But then, akin to what he says in 9.22 and 23, when we see our sin, oh, brothers, (laughs) mercy is great. And he has granted it to all men. It doesn't mean that God saves all men but it does mean that all men are responsible to respond to Him in faith and that all men have made God, have had God's mercy made available to them. God is impartial in that He has made salvation available to all men while at the same time still keeping His promise to Israel. And so now Paul has come full circle and we have... We have the full picture, as much as we can on this earth, of God's sovereignty in our salvation. He has sovereignly ordained salvation for individuals. That's that's all the way through these three chapters, 9 to 11. And He has also ordained salvation for Israel. And He has not overlooked and He has not forgotten. He has not repudiated. He has not gone back on His promises to Israel in fact, God has used Israel's rebellion for the purpose of enfolding Gentiles into His promises. And by grafting Gentiles into the promises, God is also bringing about the final, ultimate salvation of the entire nation of Israel so that all, Jew and Gentile, have had the mercy of salvation made available to them. And no man has an excuse before God. We're all sinners. And God has been amazingly merciful to us. What will we do with these truths? Oh friends, let us rejoice in a God of grace and love and mercy and immutability and impartiality. What an amazing God we have. Let me draw some other lessons from this as well. We should be led in worship and in delight in the character and nature of God. But let us also remember that sin does not inhibit God's grace. It took sin to bring about the Gentile's salvation. It took sin to provide a Redeemer. In fact, it took the greatest sin ever to accomplish redemption. The greatest sin being the crucifixion of the sinless one. How can you kill the sinless one. It is, it is the most astounding, the most horrid sin that has ever been committed in the history of this earth, and God used it to accomplish His plan of redemption for us. Friends, God uses sin to accomplish His purposes. Now, that doesn't mean we use sin to get grace. That's chapter 6, right? But we do recognize that no sin is an encumbrance to God's grace. No sin is greater than God's grace. No sin can overwhelm God's grace. No sin is an encumbrance to God's grace for the Jews, for the Gentiles, for you, for me, or any of our family or loved ones. His grace is adequate to overwhelm every sin. Sin does not inhibit God's grace. Sin will not be unpunished. Either I will pay for my sin, and I cannot, which is why hell is eternal, or Christ will pay for it. Those are the only two options. And my friend, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you do not belong to Him, if you are not His child, oh friend, these are the only two options for you. You will either attempt for all of eternity in hell to pay for your sin, and you cannot, and you will spend eternity there, or you will appeal to God and His mercy in the person of Jesus Christ and trust Him alone. If you have not trusted in Christ as your Savior yet, I appeal to you, I beg you, trust Him alone today. He's the promise that will fulfill Israel's salvation. And He's the promise that will fulfill your salvation. God is always unendingly, perfectly, unchangingly faithful. What He says... He will do what he says he must do what he promises. He cannot not do. If he said it, he must do it. He has said he will keep Israel. He must, and he will. And along the way, he will keep us as well. Give thanks for the people of Israel. And always pray for, and as you have opportunity, evangelize them. Friends, they're the reason you and I are saved. We are hopeless without God's plan to Israel, promise to Israel. Can we live in such a way that will provoke Israel and God's people to faith? And salvation is for God's glory. We weren't in His choice of Israel. In His grace, He brought us into that plan. And the only appropriate response to His saving of us is not pride, but giving glory to Him. Which is where Paul will go next. The glory and exaltation and worship of God for such an astounding, gracious salvation of Israel and of us. What's going to happen to God's people? Oh, brothers and sisters, they are saved for His glory. Our Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness, Your faithfulness to us once we have been redeemed, Your faithfulness to Israel, which is yet awaiting its final redemption. And even more than both of those things, your faithfulness to yourself for what you have promised, you cannot deny. We lean on that. We find hope and confidence in that. In a world that is decadent and rebellion against you, we find hope and confidence and joy in the fact that that you will keep your promises. You will establish your kingdom. Christ will rule in that kingdom. Israel will be saved. And we also will be saved. Seems inadequate. But what can we say except thank you and we worship you. In the name of Christ. Amen.